At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, Saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit seedsavinghacked.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Don Tipping of Seven Seeds Farm to talk about his experience with seeds and plant breeding. Don has been offering hands-on practical seed workshops at Seven Seeds Farm since 1997. His farm is a small organic farm in the Siskiyou Mountains of Southwest Oregon, situated at 2,000 foot elevation on a 7,000 foot tall forested mountain with rushing spring-fed creeks flowing through the land and nestled among old growth forests. Don helped found the Siskiyou Sustainable Cooperative, which manages a 300 share CSA, a commercial seed growing operation, and an equipment co-op and internship curriculum among the 12 cooperating farms. He also co-founded the Family Farmers Seed Cooperative, a seed growing marketing and distribution cooperative comprised of 10 Western organic farms. He sits on the board of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance and is a regular contributor to the Oregon State University Small Farms Education Program. Don is also a charter member of the Open Source Seed Initiative, OSSI, as a plant breeder and seed company advocate. Don is regularly sought out as a teacher, collaborator, and consultant in the Pacific Northwest. Welcome to the show today, Don. Hi, good morning, Greg. So glad to be here. And thanks Thank for you. being here. I'm excited to chat with you. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get to where you're at now? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, going way back, I had the opportunity to run a small CSA farm at a Waldorf school in Davis, California, back in 1995. And at that point, I worked on a number of organic farms, and my relationship with seeds was just something that you opened a package and you poured mm. something out and then you planted it. Right. I never really had given it much thought where they came from. And then through that Waldorf School farm experience, I had the opportunity to meet a man named Harold Hoven, who uh, ran a small CSA farm at the Rudolf Steiner College in Fair Oaks, California, and taught biodynamic agriculture. And he had a long-standing relationship with growing seed. Mm. And not so much for the uh, kind of self-sufficiency system, but as he put it, it was a way that a farm system could express its individuality. You know, so basically, the, oh, the over time, the plants 
through saving seed are going to become adapted to that climate, the soils, the bugs, the diseases, uh, that sort of thing. And, you know, ultimately be more of a signature uh, of, of the farm. So that really put the, the curiosity in my, my mind around seed. And I've been saving seed ever since. And then when I moved to Oregon in 96, uh, ironically, I, it was not my intention, but the Applegate Valley here in southern Oregon, which is part of the larger Rogue River Valley, uh-huh has long been an area where there's been a lot of organic seed growing happening. So I was not only able to meet people that had been doing this for years, but also Seeds of Change, the seed company, really had its start in this area. Uh-huh. And I was able to get a couple seed contracts, two to be specific, uh, back for the 97 season. I remember we grew lemon cucumbers and a Chinese cabbage. And uh, and that's how I got my feet wet with seed saving as uh, a, a you know significant part of what we do here on our farm. Right. Curious. You said a couple of things that I want to kind of touch in on. You use the word farm system to describe a farm. Yeah. Can you say more about that? You know, there's a, a number of words that people use to describe the sort of closed loop farm system or whole system and it, you know permaculture is a, a new buzzword relatively new buzzword biodynamics has always had that view natural farming so you know that and really lately i've been thinking about the old miss prime old mcdonald had a farm oh yes it's actually kind of a sacred incantation of how a healthy farm should be and that's if you ask a child what's on a farm they're gonna say you know animals a barn, plants, mm-hmm. a family, you know, the, those iconic aspects. So that's what makes a farm a system, you know, so that uh, a, a true, you know, closed loop system, the fertility is coming from within the system. You know, the animals make manure and that fertilizes right. the crops yeah. and the crop residues help make compost, you know, and so forth. Uh, you can get real complicated. So, you know, seed saving is, I think, an intrinsic part of that and uh, lately I've been thinking about it that I think in a way seed saving is the defining element of what makes agriculture. You know, pretty much until we started seed saving, we were hunter gatherers. Right. And then once we started saving the seeds and replanting them, that's when agriculture started. Yeah. So it's so ironic that nowadays most farms don't save any seed. They buy it all. And you know, and they don't have any animals or they don't uh, save any water in ponds or mm-hmm. rainwater or swales, that kind of thing. And, you know, I, I think we see so many efforts within the organic natural farming community to get back to this old McDonald had a farm uh, ideal of right. what is a farm. So. Wow, cool. And, and something that hadn't occurred to me interestingly, was that growing seeds is probably pretty significantly different than growing food. Yeah, is that, it? this is true. And that's one thing we do uh, some quite a bit of education here on the farm. We do twice a year, a five day intensive on seed growing. And a lot of people, because seed is kind of a hot topic right now mm-hmm. with GMOs and Monsanto and, you know, basically seed saving is seen as the I hope the answer to what the GMO mess, but people are all excited to get into it. And one of the things I like to remind folks of is that you have to be really good at growing the crop to maturity. You know, if you're going to grow, you know, Chinese cabbage for, you have to be able to grow a head of Chinese cabbage. Right. If you want to grow lettuce for seed, you have to be able to grow a good head of lettuce because the seed part is the next stage. And also, you know, oftentimes when we eat a vegetable or a fruit, in the case of a cucumber or a tomato, we're interrupting the life cycle of that plant and we're consuming the fruits or the vegetative portion at an immature state. So, you know, like a cauliflower, for instance, uh, when we eat it, it's a suppressed flower bud. Right. But when you let it 
all the way to seed, that plant might get five or six feet tall and be covered with hundreds, if not thousands of flowers. And then those flowers get pollinated and then the plant begins to dry down. And by the time you're harvesting seed, it looks like a weed, like a tumbleweed, like a dry, dead stalk. Right. And sometimes when we do farm tours, I'm a little embarrassed of how our fields look because to the untrained eye, it's not these neat, tidy rows of heads of lettuce or nice, you know, compact, uh, easily recognizable vegetables. They look like, you know, a radish plant for seed looks like a tumbleweed. They're huge, like three or four feet around. And so you have to, you know, it's just a longer cycle. And if the weeds get in there or it's just you're you're interacting with the plant for a longer amount of time. Mm -hmm. And in that, there's a lot of beautiful things that happen because all of a sudden the pollinators uh, become really important allies even more so. Yeah. And you always have things flowering on the farm, whereas lettuce, most of us never let our lettuce flower. We eat it as salad and then it's also providing habitat for all these frogs snakes lizards birds we have untold amount of songbirds that come in in the fall to clean up the seeds that we haven't gotten to or we're trying desperately to get around to before they eat it right exactly so again back to that idea of a system the farm becomes more of an ecology and and that's I, I really like that term that I think is used more in other countries than the U.S. of agroecology and yeah. the idea that part of the salvation of what we can do around climate change, carbon farming, really entails seeing agriculture as an ecological system that Gone. isn't degrading the earth, but uh, to the contrary, improving right. the wildlife habitat, the quality of the soil, pollinator habitat, uh, the quality the nourishment for the human part of the equation and so yeah that whole part it's just you kind of have to be a little more invested if you want to say see because it's going to take more patience and more perseverance and and more time yeah unless of course and this is where i don't like to scare people away just let things go to seed you don't even need to know what's going on right just let it go wild and all of a sudden seeds falling on the ground and and then growing back up again, yeah. even if you have no clue what you're doing. So there's a beauty in that, too. You, right. You can choose your own adventure, adventure, so to speak. Nice. So you run Seven Seeds Farm and Siskiyou Seeds, mm-hmm. and you do education around that. Tell us about all the great stuff that you do in, underneath the umbrella of all of that. Yeah. You know, as a lot of farms, it's kind of evolved over the years. But at, here at Seven Seeds Farm... We have 40 acres of land, of which we're tending about 12 acres. And of that, we have about five acres in annuals, the most of which is for seed production. The rest of it is just our own subsistence uh, homestead. Mm. And then we have about three acres of fruit trees, and we uh, sell that at a farmer's market. And also, I started at a a cooperative CSA with some other farmers about 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we deliver food to about 300 families uh, wow. for the season. And we also uh, work with the uh, senior centers locally uh-huh. to uh, supply pro- you know, organic produce there. And uh, also the hospital workers uh, at the two hospitals nearby, we supply organic produce wow. to them as part of their benefit. We keep sheep, goats, and poultry as well here, but that's kind of more just for our own homestead use. Yeah. Well, and the so. manure that goes behind them, yes? Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. Yeah. So tell me about the Siskiyou Sustainable Cooperative, and the, the you use the initial CSA. Now, while most of our listeners might know what that is, would you just ref, you know kind of explain what a CSA is and what you're doing there? Yeah. So... Basically, a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, is what that stands for, is a subscription-based approach to delivering and marketing produce. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we saw that in our area, you know, the farmer's markets, there's a a bit of an erratic nature. If you, let's say you're a farmer and you sell there, 
uh, you could have, uh, you know, good business, uh, good sales, and then all of a sudden maybe a couple new farms begin selling, and mm -hmm. maybe they're selling the same things as you. So it, it's difficult to develop uh, customer loyalty in that, even though that does happen at the market. Where the beauty of the CSA is, is we're entering a relationship with the customers who are agreeing upfront to support us for the season, and in turn, we're providing them you know, produce once a week, and they get some say in the diversity and quantity in that, and they get a better value yeah. as well. So for us, you can also, you can get just a, a basic, you know, produce uh, box of a, you know, mini, small or large size, but we also have eggs, flours, uh, milk, a couple different kinds of meat, bread, uh, local brick oven bakery oh, nice. and we used to even do fresh roasted coffee so you can add these options on to really make it more of a whole whole diet csa yeah and uh, and, and we've had a lot of people that have stuck with us for years i mean like i said we've been doing this for 14 years and it, it works out pretty well so nice so and you you actually put together a cooperative of farmers to make that happen yeah so because cool. you can imagine there's a lot of administration to something like this, oh, all yeah. the communication with each of those 300 clients and all of the specialty things. So the way we've done it is there's one family that has a farm that runs the CSA. They do all of that and they get paid to administer that. And then as growers, we sell our produce in at 75% of retail. Mm -hmm. So you can compare that with if you're wholesaling, it's about 60%. Mm -hmm. So we get a little better price, but we also own the company. It's a cooperative. Right. So we have a say what, how, how we do business. And, and then theoretically, if there's extra money left over at the end of the year, we decide if we're going to distribute it amongst ourselves or oftentimes we'll invest in, you know, like we own a refrigerated produce truck All right. or, you know, we'll do some capital improvement for right. our business. Wow, how cool is that? And and to top that all off, you've got the Family Farmers Seed Cooperative. So that's a cooperative that's growing seed. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, any farm that really wants, I think, long-term resilience, mm -hmm. wherever they are, if you want to have different, you know, eggs in your basket. Right. Uh, or, you know, don't put all your eggs in the same basket. So. A lot of these growers that grow produce also have some fruit trees and do some seed production. So we found that because so many of us were growing seed, we actually started as an offshoot of the CSA co-op, a equipment sharing co-op, where we have a few pieces of seed cleaning and harvesting equipment that we share amongst mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then we began to you know, see that this little model that we had of collaboration and sharing was uh, something that may benefit others who maybe are in regions where there aren't so many other growers growing seed. Right. So the Family Farmers Seed Co-op started back in 2008, and they're growers in Colorado, New Mexico, Washington, uh, North Dakota, Idaho, Oregon, and California. I think that's it. Wow. Um, and on, some of those growers are just out you know, like our friends in North Dakota, and there's not many other organic growers. So by participating in this, it gives them access to markets and, um, you know, advertising and, and technical support that perhaps they wouldn't have otherwise. And, you know, the, the ultimate vision is what we want to see is these bioregional seed hubs in different regions yeah. where people are breeding organic seed crops, producing the seed, educating, sharing equipment, making it available for everybody from the garden scale to the homestead scale to the farm scale so that we have ultimately resilience in our food systems. Right. Because right now we have a system where most organic farms are buying all their seed and it's coming oftentimes from who knows where, maybe right. even overseas, China. It's not a very stable system. So you know, we got to just start small, you know, in permaculture, we say develop a nucleus and radiate outwards. Yep. So 
And I, I would say we're still working on that. It's, you know, you can't fix, uh, you know, decades worth of a, a broken system. <laughs> right. And, you know, one fell swoop. But. Right. Well, I've, I've always say yeah. that, you know, people, uh, they say to me, Greg, you're that guy that lives in that totally sustainable house in North Central Phoenix. And uh-huh. I, I've always viewed what I do as a process, not a destination. Because uh-huh. I don't know that my house could ever be totally sustainable. Hey, I still drive a car. I still wear clothes, you know, so on and so on. Uh, yeah. So for me, it's become a, a journey of uh, of the journey rather than a journey of the destination. And it sounds like, you know, you guys are making great headway doing the same thing with your with both your cooperatives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think in time you know, it's, we're moving to a, a culture of access versus ownership. Uh-huh. And this idea of self-sufficiency is perhaps missing the mark. And what we really want is like community interdependence, you know, community right. reliance. So, you know, and that's something, you know, we have solar panels and a hydro system here and try and grow a lot of our own food. But I realized you can't fit, be an expert at everything. And, right there is a place for the specialists and to cultivate relationships with other people who, you know, and that, like I found, I want to do all sorts of things, but seeds are sort of my gig. So yeah. I'm going to just do a really good job with that and try and build trusting, supportive relationships with others and, you know, basically say, Hey, I'll, I'll have your back on seed and hopefully, you yeah. know, you, you've got mine on some other things. And, together we'll we'll do pretty good yeah exactly well and you know the bottom line is and you kind of inferred this along the way without seeds there's not much else yeah 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 and that's you know that's one of the things recently we did a indiegogo fundraiser to Uh help with our seed company sort of some uh you know capital improvements and one of the things is I really thought about like, well, okay, what's the elevator speech about all this thing to somebody that doesn't know anything about farming, gardening, or seeds. And I thought about it. I'm like, okay, what are the most important ingredients for human civilization? You know, obviously you've got people, right. but also air, water, soil to grow your food, and seeds because most of us still eat a diet composed mostly of annuals that require being planted every year. Yeah. We're not eating chestnuts and, you know, acorns and stuff quite yet. Uh, um, so, you know, and again, like how to articulate that in a way that's not about self-importance. It's like, well, this is just something common to all people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something we all share in common that seeds are important. And, and, I, and I think that's it's interesting that we have this whole, you know, uh, Monsanto kind of almost Star Wars good and evil epic playing <laughs> out in these times as people are trying to, you know, consolidate this, you know, and these are ultimately, I feel like it's kind of like the story of Robin Hood, that some things just always belong in the commons air. No one can own the air, you know, water. We try and own the soil, but or the ground. But even then you think there's zoning codes, laws, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And the same with seeds. Seeds should be, you know, have always been freely exchanged and, even if we create laws, I could still walk into some field, gather some seeds, take them and plant them. You know, nature has its own rules. Right. And, you know, I think we just, you know, how do we uh, bring bring the, the discourse around us to a higher level? And I, I really admire folks like Vandana Shiva who are helping us relearn what does the commons mean? Yeah. What does sharing really mean? And, uh, you know, and it runs so counter to so many of those things around private property that we as Americans in particular, we, we put this on such high esteem and I'm not meaning to undermine that for anybody and, uh-huh. and dilute it, but seeds move around, birds move them around, yep. you know, and animals are constantly moving seeds around. We can think of burrs and stuff like that. It's, it's just how, how nature works. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think we're in a fascinating time in human history where, you know, things that we assumed are, are all of a sudden having to be discussed and right. and come to new agreements about. Yeah. So speaking yeah. to that, the open source seed initiative or OSSI, can you say a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So, you know, we realized, uh, again, just to give a nod to, you know, some of the problems that we faced with the control of seeds and the intellectual property around it. I've been involved in a number of lawsuits and different things uh, around fighting GMO crops being released. Uh-huh. And um, we realized uh, fighting that paradigm isn't really uh, useful or effective. You know, they just, they've already invested so much in all the attorneys and the public relations firms and the you know, the utility patents and all that stuff. So how can we, as a community of plant breeders, and really that's the open source seed initiative was started by plant breeders at the uh, public land grant colleges in Oregon, which is OSU Washington, which is WSU Wisconsin uh-huh. State, and Cornell University in New York. Wow. Basically getting together and saying, how can we... Um, develop a understanding around material that we develop as plant breeders uh, that we are putting it in the commons. You know, and our, the term we used to use for this was public domain, that we would put it in the public domain instead of patenting it or controlling it in the private. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with the, the proliferation of open source software, uh, folks realized like, well, maybe that's a way that we could understand it, better, that these are open source seeds and so everybody in the open source seed initiative who's a part of it, whether it's a plant breeder or a seed company, uh, is pledging, you know, it's just a voluntary pledge of saying, I agree uh, that I'm you know, putting these seeds, this variety that I bred, into an open source arrangement. Anybody can obtain these seeds, grow them, and save seeds uh, and we encourage them to credit the breeder if they're willing to, but there's not a requirement around nice. that. So it's really a good faith effort. Yeah. And the idea is if we get enough momentum and enough people participating in this, we actually create a whole new paradigm around this. To the extent that it's legally defensible, I don't know. We, you know hopefully we never have to test that. But right. one of the, the little things that uh, happened was uh, there's a plant breeder at Oregon State named Jim Myers who's been involved in the organic community for quite a number of years. And he created a broccoli, an uh, open-pollinated broccoli that he was planning on just uh, releasing to the public. You know, they weren't going to patent it or anything like this. And it had this unique characteristic of the head was uh, above the foliage. And it's, he calls it the exerted head trait. So in a large scale, you could come along with a machine and cut those heads uh, more easily without getting a lot of leaves stuck in the mix. Right. Well, as it turns out, Syngenta somehow obtained some seed, grew it out, and then patented that trait as their own creation. Oh, geez. And, well, they didn't create it for one. You know, Jim Myers created it to put it in the commons, and then they took it and said, we invented it. And, you know... and. Basically, they've dropped that because they got publicly humiliated about it. But the seed initiative is trying to avoid situations like that. Yeah. Um, you can't pledge a variety that you didn't breed. So I can't take an heirloom, let's say, you know, like I was just in New Mexico for a conference. Uh-huh. I can't take some heirloom indigenous corn from a Pueblo tribe and pledge it to the open source seed initiative saying I bred this because I didn't. So, you know, you need, it's a bit of a kind of an honor system around that, but there is a review board uh, around that because we want to avoid, you know, that kind of biopiracy trait. So, yeah. Yeah. Biopiracy. Say a little bit about that and then I'm going to shift on you. Yeah. So, you know, basically with that is the idea that there's this uh, indigenous wealth that's been created over the centuries. Gary Nabham said in his book, where our food comes from, that 99% of the improvement of our vegetable varieties was completed 300 years ago. Oh, wow. And what we've done in the modern era amounts to less than 1%. Because you think about it, we took basically weeds and uh-huh. turned them into corn, peppers, right. melons, eggs, plants, you know, vast improvement. So the idea that, uh, you know, these biotech companies can go into predominantly developing countries and identify traits and and, and patent them as their own novel inventions. And this is taking place. They're patenting oh, concepts yeah. like red 
in lettuce or heat tolerance or something and saying they invented that when actually it was just an inherent trait to a land-based variety. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, open source seed initiative is we can't stop that. That's a, a giant thing we've already tried. It's a, a legal, uh, you know, wormhole. So <laughs> what can we start to begin to start, a, a, you know, a new, just a new idea that makes more sense yeah. and it's actually more feasible over the long term. So, yeah. Cool. So yeah. can you talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that theory and what you might have learned from it? Yeah, well, there's a lot. I mean, I I think uh, embracing working with seeds is, or farming in general is you just have to kind of romance failure. And one of my mentors, uh, Jim Leap, who is a farm manager at the uh, University of California, Santa Cruz Farm, he said a good approach is to cut your expected yields in half and double your expected expenses. And if you hit that one quarter of your goal, yeah. you're doing great. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's, that's a kind of a sad Murphy's law approach to life. But, you know, I think what, you know, some of the things, because nobody ever really taught me how to do this, there wasn't really a school you could go to, to learn seed growing or plant breeding. Right. And and then if we're excited about things, we just get into it and we just start doing it. So like one of the things I did once is I started really getting into growing onion seed, which is a biennial. So right. first you grow the onions, you dig them up, sort them, replant them, and then they go over the winter and then flower and make seed in the next year. So it's about 18-month life cycle. Wow. Well, in my excitement about this, I started working on this project of, of very detailed – uh, you know, plant breeding of, you know, growing thousands of onions and then selecting to the like maybe thousand bulbs that were the best and replanting those. And then I'd save seed. Well, and then what I did is I started, uh, let's say this is 2008 that I started seed for some of these. Then in 2009, I started another one and I realized I had two breeding projects that were leapfrogging one another, never communicating because they were in alternate years. Right. And just, I'd never, it stopped to think about it long enough to like, oh, that's dumb. Now I'm like, created two projects where I should have just done one. You know, so there's things like that. Um, another one, that, and this one's a little more simple, is I started working with a large uh, organic produce grower in my area because I realized, okay, you know, Steve's growing 100 acres of organic veggies. He's buying a lot of seed. Maybe we could collaborate. I could find out what he likes or doesn't like about what's out there mm -hmm. and we can save some in his field so we had a, a, a bed of collards it was about a thousand feet long you know big a lot of collards and it was bolting it was beginning to flower and it was about six seven feet tall wow. and you know i was talking to steve and we we're in a 40 acre field of vegetables you know which is a lot of space that's a quarter mile on a side uh you kind of need like a truck or an atv to get around you're too far to walk and I said, Steve, do you have any other Brassica oleraceae species here? And he's like, Brassica what? He's <laughs> like, my wife buys all the seed. You'll have to talk to her. But I don't think so. And I realized, you know, that's where most produce growers are at. Right. They're just, Buying seeds. you know, they're just chasing the tiger's tail, you know, right. just trying to keep the bills paid and all that. So, you know, I asked Susie and she's like, no, I don't think so. His wife. And, and then, you know, we're. I was driving in a different part of the field one day and I noticed this huge hedge of yellow, yellow flowers. Uh oh. And I was like, wow, what's that? So I drove over to it and I looked down and it was kohlrabi. Uh -huh. You know, just some neglected partial bed they forgot about. And, you know, most farmers don't know that collards and kohlrabi are actually the same species, right. even though they look so different. You know, so all of a sudden I was like, oh no, Steve, you know, like, and again, I'm, I, it's not my farm. I'm just collaborating. I can't just jump on a tractor and mow down the kohlrabi. And, you know, again, it's all Latino men on the field. And they're like, well, you'll have to find Steve, you know. And, uh, you know, and so there's this panic moment of like, God, how long have these been flowering? Did I just allow them to cross? And, you right. know, is this all this work going to do for nothing? And, you know, and these kind of things happen. And I, I just, you know, we, we move forward. We managed to get that mowed down. We saved the seeds of the collard and they're, they're pretty good. You know, they're, you can't see any, any weirdness in there. Right. 
But had it been, you know, collards, again, we just eat the leaves. So a yeah. little bit of kohlrabi in there is not that big a deal. Yeah. If it had been the other way around, it could have been disastrous. Yeah. So I did that. We're always just flirting with that, that kind of that edge. Yeah. Well, just, just to finish that idea is what we're doing in horticulture is we're trying to maintain all this control. Yeah. Where nature wants to have a big, you know, just orgy and, and everything <laughs> get all crossed up and, and we just, you know, it wouldn't be all the diversity that we celebrate. Yeah. So I did that once with uh, beets and Swiss chard, grew them next to each other. Oh, yeah. Let the let one of them yeah. go to seed and save the seeds. And well, that was pretty much the end of the beets. Yeah. So. So what do you consider your biggest success? You know, for me, one of the things I've been thinking about, it's really easy to get focused on, you know, all the minutia of what we do. Yeah. But I realize like everything that we're doing on this farm is ultimately for the people. You know, we can say, oh, we're improving wildlife habitat or pollinator habitat or we're, we're improving our soil or we're really, you know, trying to grow soil. But really it's all for our own ideas. For one, we're growing food. That's mm-hmm. feeding people, yeah, or growing seeds that people are going to plant to grow food to grow more pe- people, or even the more conceptual things like flowers. It's really for our own enjoyment and, and aesthetic, uh, you know, appreciation. So, and then I think about that in terms of the young people on the farm. You know, we do internships and different trainings, and you know, we're cultivating. Um, and Fukuoka had a great quote to that extent, you know, that said the ultimate goal of agriculture isn't the growing of crops, but the cultivation of the human potential. Yeah. And so that's one of the things I look at more and more is, you know, we've been doing internships for 19 years here and to see the people, some have gone on to start farms mm-hmm. or even seed companies. Others have gone on to start families. And, you know, they were inspired about having kids through this experience of right. living on our farm and, and those, those relationships and that were ultimately inspiring people to develop relationships with nature to improve the quality of their life and their happiness. Yeah. You know, like at the end of the day, that's, you know, when we're all in our deathbed, I think that's the types of things we reflect fondly on. So yeah. I'm trying more and more while staying scientific and detail oriented with the business part to remember that it's about this cultivation of the, you know, human consciousness ultimately. Yeah. And, uh, and somehow trying to, and that's where I think seeds are a, a really, I never thought about this at the onset. It just was like, Oh, seeds are cool. I'll do that. Uh-huh. But that it's actually this really profound metaphor that poets throughout the ages have used to describe all sorts of things. And then you know, I talk about that here on the farm that we're actually literally working with the, you know, these all this potential. And, you know, and I think, you know, as we move seeds around, and consolidate a whole field of kale or something down into a five gallon bucket of seeds. And just the, the potential that is inherent in yeah. that is something that gives me a lot of satisfaction and more more than my own satisfaction is sharing that with others and seeing them light up with with just feeling that they don't even have to know it like kids can plunge their hands into <laughs> a bin of seeds and you just you feel the joy emanating from them yeah as they they don't even they can't you know articulate what's going on but you know so to me that that part's just so awesome yeah and uh you know, I just want to see more people have those kind of experiences in their mm. life because that's kind of what it's about yeah. increasing life. Right. Beautiful. So, so along those same lines, what drives you? That's a good question. It, it, when I teach one of the little sayings I picked up from permaculture is that if you love what you do, you'll never work another day in your life. Yeah. And there's a lot of jobs that happen here that aren't really that fun, you know, just whatever it is. Yeah, cleaning out the goat barn or something. But it's, I think, uh, one of the things I think about sometimes when I'm in these moments of maybe it's feeling a little monotonous or I'm having a hard time motivating is just remembering that 
if I can take an attitude that really what I'm doing here is I'm not the, um, like if, if this was an orchestra, I'm not the soloist. I'm not the lead first chair violin player. That's uh, a tree or an animal or a field of a plant mm-hmm. or, or things I have no control over, the dragonflies that come to the pond. I'm, I'm really just, uh, sometimes I get to be the conductor and then other times I'm the like instrument repairman, you know, <laughs> oh, this one's out of tune. I got to tune it up. And, but for it to get to that, that beautiful symphony when everything's working right entails that ultimately we're leading from behind mm-hmm. and we have to kind of just get in there and, and see that it's, it's about the, you know, the, the union of all of these elements that make a system where it's beautiful. And there's a certain like, magical dynamo aspect to it that it's just <laughs> running itself yeah. and and really a lot of it's so simple you know a, a child could learn how to do most of what i do here but it's uh, knowing the right thing to do at the right time yeah um so you know that that part it's just a perpetual challenge you know and that's one of the things i uh, sh- like to share is that i feel like farming is like climbing a mountain that you'll never reach the summit of. You'll never, <laughs> right. you'll never graduate. You'll never completely figure it out because the climate will change. There'll be new bugs. Something will be different. Yeah. And you just have to recognize when there's a plateau to turn around and just take in the view, and just breathe in, you know, gratitude for just the opportunity to to do something like that, and and just know, like, well, you know, that's that's part of what being alive is about it's just you're enjoying the process and if you're product oriented you know like there was a farmer that i got to he was from switzerland and he said the day he looked out at his field of lettuce and he saw heads of lettuces dollar bills he knew he needed to stop farming Mm. if that's if you're always deducing it down to this um you know linear quantifiable aspect and you're you're sort of losing the magic of what it is that why you do that so you know for me that's why the plant breeding is really cool because it's kind of like being an artist you're you're creating new things and so and i i sometimes use the analogy of uh you know when you you breed plants you're like uh you're like a singer songwriter that's writing their own material right and you just get seeds out of a envelope and plant them you're kind of like a cover band playing oh. cover song and then, you know you can make it sound good right but it's it's not, not really thing. you so yeah. so that that part's have been you know just how to find the creative expression as yeah. as i get older just more fulfilling right yeah so, so do you have one or two books that have been influential for you at in this process in your life well i mentioned the one earlier from uh gary paul nabham yep of uh, native seeds Spain, which you know, I know he's down in your neck of Tucson. Yep. yep. He wrote a book called uh, "Where Our Food Comes From," mm-hmm. and in that he retraces the steps of Nikolai Vavlov, who was a Russian botanist who saw starvation and famine as a major problem back in the early 1900s. And in 1910, he had developed the world's largest seed collection. Wow. Traveling all over the world with, you know, donkeys. And, you know, you can imagine the technology and what it took to get up into the the Andean highlands to gather rare peppers. Yeah. I mean, he had quinoa back in 1905, you know. So that that's fascinating just to learn where did all this stuff come from? And, And these were people that weren't scientists developing all these varieties. So that that's just as a good humbling book to realize that mm. uh, what's been done and how you know you can make a contribution yeah you know even if you don't know what you're doing so that uh, and then another one would be uh, a book called return to resistance by raul robinson and hmm. that one is it's basically a plant breeding uh book but it, it has a lot of uh, story in it and of over the 40 years of his career, he traveled around the world and again was looking at problems that were affecting the food supply. You know, some blight on a potato in Africa and as a primary staple crop. So he would go in and try and do low-tech plant breeding with the community to help them 
improve their crops. Hmm. So this is where the idea of horizontal resistance and plant breeding was developed. And, you know, what a lot of us in the organic camp are doing is best articulated in this book. And I know it's back in print now. It went out of print. But it's, uh, yeah, just a fantastic tale that, again, looks at the global situation in agriculture in a positive way and what right. we can do about it. Yeah. I'm on Amazon right now, and there are plenty of copies out there. Return oh, to Resistance, cool. Breeding Crops to Reduce Pesticide Dependence. Yeah. Nice. And that's, to me, a, a fascinating thing is this idea that we can actually breed plants to resist pests and diseases. Mm -hmm. So. You know, and that's one of the things I say, well, you can change the environment outside the crop, you know, with row covers, greenhouses, sprays, picking off bugs, or you can change the crop from the inside, which yeah. over the long term is a better route. It's harder. Uh, but really, when you look at all the things you don't have to buy to grow crops, then I think yeah. it's a be better way to go about it. Yeah. So. Beautiful. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I would, you know, just encourage everybody to, again, start small and harvest small mistakes. You know, so if mm. you want to get in, don't let all of the details and Latin botanical names and all that dissuade you from getting into it. Just, you know, let some lettuce go to seed or let some of your bush beans go to seed and save them and plant them and do it with your kids and and just you know, let, let the journey, the, the, the miracle of the journey pull you along rather than be scared off by the, the length of the distance, you know, like Lao Tzu yeah. said, the, the journey of a thousand miles starts that's with the first step. Yeah. So, you know, and I think that, mm. I know that's been my, what's been happening in my life. So. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Don. It has been a treat getting to chat yeah. with you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I've enjoyed it too. Absolutely. So um, one thing we didn't touch on that I want to, I want to know about your courses. Tell us about your courses, how people find out about them, how people take them. Okay. Yeah. Well, years ago, the Organic Seed Alliance used to offer a five-day class called Fundamentals of Plant Improvement. And uh -huh. they kind of changed their approach and stopped doing that. And then Bill McDormand, too, he's right about that same time, he started the seed school. Right. And, and I thought that was so cool. So I actually called up Bill McDormand. I said, hey, what do you think of me doing a seed school? And he said, great idea. Go Bring for it. it. Yeah. So uh, his wife, Belle, suggested I call it something different just to identify because it is a bit of a different thing. We do a five-day uh, intensive here on our farm called the Seed Academy twice mm, a year. Nice. So we once in May and the upcoming one is May 3rd through the 7th so people come and we feed them here they camp out or stay nearby and it's a you know we explore uh, botany uh, reproductive biology plant breeding selection seed cleaning and we do it spring and fall so that we can look at those two windows All you know right. so obviously fall one is more about seed cleaning and seed harvest and the spring one is more like plant breeding and how to plants pollinate and that kind of stuff oh. and then i bring in uh other experts uh like bill mcdormand's come right. in my friend rowan white uh -huh. uh, andrew still and sarah Klieger, uh the local plant breeder jonathan spiro and then we go on field trips to other farms that grow seed who are also members of our cdsa who also employ a lot of permaculture. So it's a really a great opportunity to learn what people who call and ask about it. I say, this is going to be a permaculture class, but it's going to be all about seeds. And nice. you're going to learn all about permaculture through the lens of seeds, seeds, of how does a whole system work. And then once you understand how systems work, it's just like an equation. You apply it to anything. And you know, and your own curiosity will pull you along. So we call it the Seed Academy from the Greek, you know, academy from that was a, a temple to Athena. Right. Uh, you know, which is, you know, about skill and knowledge. So just want to get this knowledge out there. And what's been cool for me is that a number of the uh, graduates of this program have gone on to grow seed for Siskiyou Seeds. Oh, nice. So not only am I improving our knowledge, I'm getting, uh, you know, <laughs> building our team. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, and it sounds to me like the fall one is different than the spring one. So one could take both, both academies. 
Exactly. Yeah. And I give folks a discount uh, if they sign up for both and we have scholarships available and I yes. try and really uh, make it. The last one we did, we had people that represented, I think, five or six different countries and wow. urban to rural. And, and then in, in that, we create a community of people that hopefully will you know carry forward as these seed Jedis in the future. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for doing that. This is such important work. Great. Yeah, so, you're welcome. How can our listeners get a hold of you, find out more about your courses, um, and so on? Yeah. So we have a website for the farm, which is just sevenseedsfarm.com. And that's where we advertise all our classes. And then we also have how-to tips on there. Mm -hmm. And then our seed website is siskuseeds.com. And that's where you can buy seeds and uh, find out other information as well. Perfect. Perfect. You yeah. can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash seven seeds. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Great. Thanks. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit SeedSavingHacked.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.